Live from the home office of Ag Solutions Network, it's the Ag Emerge Podcast. We're here to move the ag paradigm forward by helping you regenerate your soils using new ideas, research, and emerging technologies. Get ready to improve your soils, your crops, your livestock, and your family's livelihood. I'm Kim Sheese. And I'm Monty Bottoms. And we're your hosts. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for joining us today. I wanted to take a moment to let you know that registration is still open for our Ag Emerge event in Monterey, California. You know, Ag Emerge is more than just a conference. It's a unique opportunity to hear from multiple perspectives and see how thought leaders, entrepreneurs, and forward-thinking growers are tackling some of the most challenging problems in agriculture. It's an immersive experience with technology highlights and big-picture discussions on emerging trends in soil, plant, and animal health. You know, you're going to have ample time to trade ideas amongst some of the best minds in agriculture today. Folks like Dwayne Beck, Keith Burns, Richard Mulvaney, and Zach Bush, just to name a few. Aggie Merge is the event you're going to be talking about a long time after it's over. I hope you'll consider joining us in Monterey this January. Come and be a part of this conversation. It's going to be great. And now today on the Aggie Merge podcast, I'm visiting with Mallory Krieger. Mallory is the director of Terra Alosa, which means Earth Alive. Today, we're going to discuss with Mallory how she came to this spot in her life. She is committed to driving environmental change in the agriculture industry. Mallory is particularly focused on applying social science methods to developing system-level solutions to the environmental problems that result from industrial agriculture practices. We'll be talking about some of the work that Mallory is doing, and we'll also discuss the advanced grazing workshop that she and I attended, where Dr. Williams talked about the profound environmental benefits of getting animals back on the land in an adaptive grazing context. There's so much to learn from the work that Mallory is doing, so let's jump right in. Welcome, Mallory, and thank you for joining me today on the Aggie Merge podcast. Thanks for having me. You bet. Mallory and I had the opportunity to meet one another at the Grazing Cover Crops for Soil with Dr. Alan Williams at Greg Redmond's farm down in Frederick, Illinois, and earlier she and I were just talking about how uh, how nice it was down there that day. It was a beautiful day in addition to being a beautiful farm. So yeah, it was a wonderful day. Yes, for sure. So Mallory, what we love to do is really just understand, uh, your story of how you got into this soil health path and what it looks like for your day-to-day things that you're doing through the organizations and such that you work with. So let me just give you a chance to tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So I grew up on a conventional corn and soybean farm in Southwestern Ohio to a family who has been farming since, well, really anybody can remember (laughs) every generation of my farm going back is of my family going back as far as we can, can count, um, has been farmers. And my, um, father weathered the tough years of the ag crisis of the 1980s and decided that this wasn't what he wanted for his life anymore. And so he really encouraged my brother and I to, leave the farm, go get a college degree, get a city job, you know, you know, the old story, you know, get out of here. Don't, don't stay on the farm. And, um, so I, I was a a very, um, 
very good little girl. And I did what dad said. And I went and got a college degree and just so happened to graduate from university at the depths of the mortgage crisis, Great Recession crash in December of 2008. And um, so that kind of circumstance thrust me away from the path that I had envisioned for myself of going off to the city and getting this high-flying career job in political science. And so I decided to travel and I moved to Colorado and pursued my dream of being a ski bum. I worked at a ski resort and was a whitewater raft guide. While I was there, I, for the first time in my life, was introduced to the concept of sustainability. And I learned from the kind of more eco-minded kind of environmentalist community in the mountains of Colorado, what it meant to have a closed loop system and to have food that was raised in a an organic and a regenerative method. And so I decided that I wanted to be a part of that change in our food system. And I moved back to the Midwest where I had always, you know, had grown up, had always lived and um, ended up deciding to move to Illinois for a lot of just kind of random reasons. (laughs) But I bought an 85 acre farm and converted it to transitional organic hay production. And then on five acres of that 85, I grew annual fruits and vegetables and became a local food producer. I sold at farmer's markets. Um, I had a CSA. I sold to local grocery stores and restaurants and um, did that for five years. And I think I probably made every single mistake in the book. (laughs) I I dove in too big, too fast, had no idea what I was doing. And I suffered some hard knocks, but I grew through it. I learned tenacity and I learned grit. And I realized uh, at the kind of end of that five year period that I was really satisfied in one part of myself with providing nutrient-dense, local food, highly sustainably grown produce to my community. Mm -hmm. But there was a part of myself that was really longing to make a deeper impact, that I wanted to reach more people, more producers. Because as just one producer, I I could only produce a finite amount of food. But if I could work with other growers and help them transition their ground to more sustainable and regenerative practices, then that would be, you know, a compounding effect. I would have an effect beyond just the acres that I directly controlled. And so that led me to a position at John Wood Community College in Quincy, Illinois, where I ran the sustainable local food program and managed their on-campus farm. And after one year of doing that, a position opened up at a nonprofit in Champaign called The Land Connection. And um, even though I was really having an amazing time at John Wood, it was an opportunity I couldn't pass up to be able to work on a regional level. And so I moved to Champaign and for the next three years, worked as the farmer training program manager at The Land Connection. And in that capacity, I worked directly with fruit and vegetable farmers 
and helped them start farms, become more financially viable, become more um, environmentally restorative. Um, but I also had the opportunity to start working in the grain production space in Illinois. Mm -hmm. And it was while at, I was at the Land Connection that I realized that's what I've always been called to do. That's where I started and that's where I needed to be working. That's the largest land use in this part of the country. Right. And that's where I can make the biggest environmental impact is, is working with growers who are producing corn and soybeans mm -hmm. on a broad scale. That's so exciting. And isn't it fun to look back and see the path that took you there? And uh, yeah. <laughs> things you learned along the way. And when you look, when you're in it, you don't really realize it. But when you take a look back and you think, wow, that's that's why I had to take all of those different diversions to get to where right. I'm at. Right. Oh. And, you know, I look at the natural world and, and everything is built on cycles. We have nutrient cycling, water cycling. Life is built of cycles as well. You know, start in conventional corn and soy and that's where I circle back to. Exactly. Exactly. Well, th that's kind of fascinating. You and I have similar stories and uh, in, in the sense of how we cycle back around to things. So uh, I grew up in a, in a conventional uh, grain elevator feed store business kind of girl lived on a small little acreage, you know, with my family. And so I can appreciate exactly what you're saying. It's exciting. So bring us up to today. Let's talk about that grazing conference that we were at. What what brought you to that spot? And tell us a little bit about what what was actually going on at that grazing conference, what the purpose of those are, uh, so we can bring people up to speed on, on some of that work that's being done. Yeah. So recently, um, just this summer, I transitioned into a new role. I started um, my own business called Terra Alosa LLC, which means Earth Alive. And my mission is to restore life and biology to our agricultural ecosystems in Illinois. And through that business, I'm working with a couple of um, partner organizations under contract, one of which is the Pasture Project. And the Pasture Project is a group of um, program managers who are housed at the Wallace Center at Winrock International, who are working to bring regenerative grazing to the Midwest. They're working in a six-state region, um, Illinois being one of their primary spaces that they're doing development work for regenerative grazing. And so this workshop that you and I met at was part of a series of grazing cover crops for soil health field days that we put on through the pasture project. And, um, we brought a, an expert named Dr. Alan Williams from Understanding Ag, uh, who is a leader in developing regenerative grazing, grazing systems, to Illinois and took him on tour. And we, we went to three different farms over four different days. Um, and Dr. Alan Williams talked to everybody at these events about the profound environmental benefits of getting animals back on the land in a in an adaptive grazing context. Yes. And so he he laid out for us 
you know, a lot of the problems that we're all really aware of that are directly related to conventional um, corn and soy production. We have water quality issues in our in our rivers and um, all the way down through our watersheds, culminating at the the um, space in the Gulf where right. there's you know the dead zone where it's a um, lack of oxygen in the in the in the water that causes all of the marine life to die off. And that's, that is caused by nutrient runoff from, you know, our conventional production systems. Mm-hmm. Uh, he also talked about the soil life and how by getting livestock back onto the land, we're able to supercharge and re-inoculate the soil with microbiology because the animals and the soil biology have a symbiotic relationship. And when the animals are grazing diverse cover crops or perennial pastures, they're signaling down through the plant exudates to the microbiology, which is building aggregates in the soil that allows our soil to be more stable. It can hold nutrients better, it can hold water better, and it causes less flooding, less erosion, cleaner water that moves the water that does move through the soil is filtered and is cleaner and it promotes diversity because we have diverse life living on the soil through the plants that then goes above the soil and we have diverse insect populations diverse bird populations and it just generally makes a much healthier, more resilient, more disease resistant, more nutrient dense food system. Yeah. And so that is what we explored at that field day. Yeah, that and and it was very exciting. The passion that he has for um for teaching um these concepts and and how that they can become practical um in what used to be conventional systems is really exciting. And I think, you know, this spring was a real school of hard knocks example of how functioning soils can take a lot of water and manage a lot of water. And we saw that from one side of the road to the other, where we, we had like systems where there were cover crops and things adopted. And, and I mean, clearly at some point there was a lot of water everywhere, but for a long time, you know, those soils that were functioning and had a cover on them and a living root and those type of things, you could see how that soil was managing that water that it was receiving. Oh, it's absolutely amazing. Out at my farm in Western Illinois, um, I don't yet have animals on the land, but I'm building up toward that. Mm-hmm. But I have had it in perennial cover for the last five years. And this spring, I went around and I did um, Alan Williams' observation method that he teaches in these workshops yes. where he teaches you to measure biomass and to take a shovel and and feel the soil, smell the soil. He even sometimes talks about tasting things. I have to admit, I'm a little reticent on the tasting. But, you know, using using four of my five senses yes. to, to assess what's going on in the soil. And I was blown away. Um, I have a neighboring field that has been in conventional corn and soy rotation for at least 
35, 40 years. And our fields are the same soil type. And the only thing that separates them is a 10 foot wide gravel lane. And I went through with my soil probe and my spade and my thermometer. And when I, when I opened up the soil on, on the side that's been in perennial cover, the soil was, was moist but it was also loose and it had dense roots and many earthworms and it smelled musky, that deep, you know, kind of earthen smell. And I was able to penetrate the spade as deep as I wanted to go. I, I, I couldn't stop the spade. Um, That's one of the exciting things is when it just pushes right through. Oh, like, yeah. It's amazing. <laughs> and, and the only thing that was hanging it up was the root systems. Like I had to cut through the roots. I walked across the lane into the the neighboring field and it was in corn. So I walked about 10 rows deep into the corn to get, um, you know, a little away from the lane. Sure. I I couldn't penetrate this, the spade. I Mm. couldn't go more than about an inch and a half. And the soil was about eight degrees hotter, even though it was under the canopy of the, of the corn. So no direct sunlight was hitting the soil. Um, but what blew me away was the fact that I couldn't penetrate the shovel mm-hmm. at all. And it just, I actually was quite surprised. I, I thought it was going to go in deeper. I did a water infiltration test in the two sites. And the infiltration rate wasn't as great on my ground as I was hoping that it would be. Um, at five minutes, I had about 50% infiltration. At five minutes in in the cornfield, I had zero percent infiltration, and right. when I touched the soil, when I put my finger down in the water, on the side that had been in perennial cover, it was spongy, and my finger came up totally clean. Mm-hmm. But when I placed my finger down in the water in the on the infiltration ring in the cornfield, you know it's bare earth. I could stick my finger in about a half inch into the soil and it came up totally muddy. It was like soup. It was like black soup. And um, when I lifted the ring up, there was still about a half inch of water that was yet to infiltrate on on the pasture, or not the pasture, but the perennial cover side. Mm -hmm. And when I lifted it up, it just kind of distributed and it instantly soaked in and no soil moved at all. Even though I had cleared the plant debris off of the surface, no soil had moved. When I lifted the ring on the soil, on the cornfield side, the the water, I mean, it was a half inch left of water in a six inch ring. It it went downhill and it made a gully. It mm. was it was just one water bottle worth of water made a micro gully. That w- the soil was so fine, and it lacked it lacked aggregates to hold the particles together um, so much that. It, it just washed away. Yes. I mean, these are simple observations that folks are doing in the field to see how their soil is responding to these uh, practices. And, and it, it's not hard to do, but it does take, it, you know, it does take getting out there and looking at it and really seeing what's happening. And, you know, you, you've talked about that, that you've, pick this spot because this is where you feel called to be, but you picked one tough spot to be in. 
<laughs> yes, uh, and, <laughs> I hear you. And, and so I'm, I'm curious. Uh, I, I'd love to talk with you about how do we help get folks information about this? How do we change ideas and concepts? You know, you and I have talked a little bit about that, but what does that look like? How are you doing this work to say, step across my lane and take a look and mm-hmm. really a- adopt mm-hmm. some of these things. Let's talk a little bit about, first of all, what what's stopping folks from, from making some of these changes? I think the, the, the number one thing that's stopping people from making these changes is fear of social ridicule. We, we have a, a really strong culture here in in the Midwest and in Illinois particularly, of this concept of what it means to be a successful farmer. And without really ever defining it explicitly with each other, we all know what it is. It's someone who has a clean field, someone who has a high yield, large acreage, new equipment, we rarely define being a successful farmer using soil health metrics, water quality metrics, profitability metrics. All of those are kind of more hidden. The way we define being a successful farmer culturally are visible things. I often say that A farmer is unique because his or her work is completely on display for everyone to see. My work isn't, you know, my work happens in my basement on my computer. And if I want to try something new, I have privacy. I have, I have a safe place where I can do it without people noticing and I can perfect it before I roll it out for everybody to see. But if a farmer is going to experiment That farmer is doing it in public view and people look and we all know they look and we know they talk. (laughs) And so we have to, as, as change makers, as organizers, as educators, we have to create spaces where farmers who are willing already naturally by their contrarian personality types, those pioneers (laughs) that they are able to meet with each other and provide each other that support that they aren't going to be getting at the local coffee shop because they're the odd person out. They're, sure. they're the one doing something different. So one of the strategies that I've been using in organizing the work that we are organizing is creating spaces where farmers can connect with each other and share with each other. It was one of the benefits that we have now that we didn't have 15 years ago or even 10 years ago is um, really robust and easy electronic communications. We've got email listservs. We've got social media. We have YouTube. One of the downsides to that is people are finding their connection outside of their immediate communities. Mm -hmm. So their neighbors are still seeing them as the odd person out, but they have a sense of community with this community outside of their geographic location. We need to bring, we need to bridge that divide and bring those two together by having events in small communities out on farms where farmers are getting together Mm -hmm. and talking face to face. 
Yes. And I think we saw that just at, at for example, the, the grazing event where people were just sharing information and asking questions. And we stand on those five, you know, soil health principles. But what we say is, while the principles are the same, the practices vary by region and by, you yes. know, area. Even farm to farm. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, that's why it's so key for these folks to build these communities within their own community because they do need to share those things that they do have in common that are working. But it also addresses a couple of things that we tell people too, which is, you know, we're not looking for you to do 4,000 acres at one time, like go all in. Mm-hmm. It, you just can't. You know, you're going to have struggles and failures and successes. But we always kind of laugh and say, put your test plot back behind the field that you, <laughs> you have alongside yeah. the road. If if you don't want to if you don't want to stir the pot too much, but if you're a pot stirrer, we'll then put it right out there on the highway and put a sign on it and put a <laughs> sign on it. That's right. You know, this kind of leads into a, another need that I see really frequently. Um, you mentioned that farmers, you know, in different regions have have different practices that might get them to the same outcomes on those soil health principles. But time and time again, and and this even happened at the grazing cover crops workshop that we were at together, farmers come up to me and they say, okay, I love these events. I, I, it's so valuable to me to hear how it's working for other people, but I still have so many questions about my land. Is this going to work on my soil type? I have this unique weed pressure or like I've got both this all like crazy. What do I do specifically in my context? And so we have a a really deep need for trained technical service providers, crop consultants, agronomists who are available for one-on-one consulting on regenerative practices for farmers. That is a real weak point in that pipeline from our messaging and outreach to farmers all the way to successful implementation of regenerative practices. And so another group that I am working with is the Organic Agronomy Training Service, otherwise known as OATS. And um, I'm the national program director for that group. Our mission is to train technical service providers, agronomists, CCAs in organic agronomy and organic production practices for grain farmers. That's where we're starting. The long-term vision is that we're going to branch out into other production um, systems like grazing, like vegetables, like perennial crops. But right now we're starting with corn and soy because that is the vast majority of the acreage. So start with what you got and, and serve that need. Yes, I, I think that is so exciting. And and that's so much of what we try to do at ASN. We are working with producers to help them to build those systems based off of what we've learned from practical application, you know. And so that's what's exciting is that we know there's no silver bullet, but we do know that there there is a way to pack your toolbox so that you're ready to investigate some things. And even as uh, just a couple of weeks ago, I had a great conversation with Tom Cotter, who's up in Southern Minnesota, and his family has been using no-till and and cover crops for years. And he speaks to the diversity and and the opportunities 
that these practices have given him to be able to make changes or adapt when the weather changes on you, when, you know, whatever the situation is that happens. And so he gets more flexibility mm-hmm. because of his diversity, because he's got other crops and other enterprises that are offering him some cushion, so to speak, so that he can keep adopting these practices. So all the while he's building his soil health, but he's also got opportunities um, within maybe some challenges that happen during that year. And, And that's exciting. And, you know, he will say, it's through the some of the challenges that he's had that he's learned the most. You know, th- those mm-hmm. are some of the things that he's talked about. And so I think as you as you speak to those things and you start building this group of folks that are all speaking the same language, because, you know, we know about the Ray Archuletas and the Gabe Browns who are out telling the story and the Dr. Alan Williams that that are telling the story and seeing these successes. But we need a lot more folks, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, saying that message. So uh, one of the other things that I noted from the uh, meeting was that not only were there producers, farmers in these meetings, but there were bankers there, mm-hmm. there. So that's one of the other pieces is while we need people who are helping build this knowledge and helping us to know, okay, for my soil, what do I need to do next? We also need the other side of the spectrum where the folks who are involved in the financing and, you know, our government programs and all of these type of things that they're getting up to speed on what's happening because it sure looks a lot different on a balance sheet preparation or mm-hmm. something yeah. um, to your banker. So those were some exciting things that I saw happening as well. And have you seen that too? Oh, yes, we are. We are. Every event, I see new bankers, new farm managers, new program officers from government programs who are coming out and spreading the word in their agencies and organizations. When I first started in this field, there was one banker who I would occasionally run into. And he talked about how he felt very alone or that he felt very um different in his industry because he was looking really seriously at regenerative and organic agriculture as a, um, a a vehicle for better investment in terms of the the safety of the investment because they're more profitable systems they're more resilient systems there's less inherent risk built into them and um, he he mentioned to me, I ran into him a couple months ago, and he said, I just can't believe how many of my peers are now understanding this and how many of them are coming out. It's it's growing. And you were you were talking about the farmer who was learning from the challenges. Mm-hmm. And one thing I notice among the farmers who have who have been doing this for five or more years, almost to a person, they say, It took me five years. But at the five-year mark, something just completely changed. My mind changed, my land changed, and it all happened at the same time. Mm -hmm. And soil scientists say that it takes five years of regenerative and or organic practices to recharge the soil. And then at that point, the soil is moving on its own steam. And 
it also takes five years for the mind and the heart to change in a person. And it's really beautiful to see that symbiotic relationship between the farmer and the land and how that transformation happens at the same time. And I think Alan Williams is completely right when he says that the key to managing in a regenerative system is regular and dedicated observation. Yes. And that I think is the, 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 the key and the, the, the main difference in mentality between regenerative farming and input-based, formula-based conventional farming. And that is direct and repeated observation and changes based on what is observed yes. on the part of the farmer. Uh, absolutely. And I'll tell you, Mallory, when we do these podcasts, I will I will say that word comes up in almost every one of them. And it, mm. it is observation. It is that common thread through all of this, because in order to really see what is happening out there in the field, it just gets you a little bit more connected. People go out and they just sit there and they listen for what they can hear. They're observing what they can see. Like you said, Dr. Williams had us chewing on cover crops and mm-hmm. you know <laughs> we were we were really understanding what was happening in the field and and so with that observation I think that builds enthusiasm because when they go out there and they start seeing these changes happening when you watch when they get a large rain and you watch that there's not ponding on mm-hmm. that 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 rain is being infiltrated into the soil in a great system. That's pretty darn exciting. Oh, it's amazing. <laughs> we, uh, the, the last workshop in that series of grazing workshops that we held a cu- last month was down at Ted Krauskopf's in Highland, Illinois, in Southern yes. Illinois. And Ted is doing amazing work with adaptive grazing. And he had about, oh, I want to say it was about 50, 50 to 60 head of cattle in this one paddock. And we were out there actually learning how to move fence, how to calculate what the paddock size needed to be for um, a day's worth of grazing for that stocking density. And while we were standing there, I realized that there were no flies on the cattle. And I got to watching, and there were flies in the cow patties, but they weren't on the cattle. And then all of a sudden, the wind shifted, and it, it scared this flock of, of birds that had been hidden in the dense biomass of the pasture and I saw this flock of birds fly up and then we moved the cattle and they all landed right behind where the cattle had been and started to go to work on those cow patties. And so I saw beetles and birds working those cow patties into the soil and keeping the pest pressure down for those cattle. And then as the cattle moved, and the birds had finished that first flush of insects that had been come up out of the cow patties. They, they lifted up on one end and hopped over the, their own flock and landed on the other end of the ground. So it was like this rotation of birds were happening in the background. I don't, I don't know how anybody could look at that and, and not crave having that in their life to be able to see 
the the diversity and the power of the natural systems happening around them. It was it was beautiful and profound. And I remembered, I had this flash memory of driving through Western Kansas past the big feedlots and the stench that made it into my car with the windows rolled up and realizing that we were creating a point source pollution issue by aggregating all of the cattle and having them defecate where they were living. And then to think about Ted's place and how it was clean mm-hmm. and beautiful and sweet smelling it was. And to know that that's food too. Right. <laughs> and that it is, it is feeding people and that it can feed people on the same scale mm-hmm. with the right rotation pattern. Yes, yes. And that's really what's key is that we're learning how to bring it to scale, right? Mm -hmm. Um, We don't have all of the answers yet, maybe, but we are learning about how we can do that. And I think that, you know, one of the things that you said is you're watching nature do its thing, that word biomimicry comes up and that we're just being able to mimic what nature wants to do, you know? And so that instead of fighting it, we're, we're working with it hand in hand and that's, that's really exciting. One of the things that, you know, we touched a little bit on it about what makes a farmer change what they're doing. Are there other things? We know that social pressure is one of them. Are there other things that are that are complicated? We, we know that there are things that could be going on that keep them from making some of these transitions. I mean, we've got investments and assets. Mm-hmm. We've got, you know, we've got all kinds of things that are sitting there on the farm that just keep pulling us back into that conventional practice. Are there other things that you see that are standing in the way? And then also, what are our solutions to those things to help us move move on toward regenerative? Yeah, you mentioned assets. Um, I, I think that a major a major challenge that we have to overcome to see regenerative agriculture really take off is the debt load that farmers are carrying. Mm-hmm. So many farmers are so over leveraged and right now they are, uh, I think it was the past two consecutive years and please correct me if, if I'm incorrect, but I think the past two consecutive years, um, the average farm income net income on uh, conventional corn and soy acres was negative. Mm-hmm. For the, so for the fat past two years on average farmers lost money mm-hmm. and they're carrying debts and they're having to service that debt. And how are they going to do that when they are making a net negative return? Right. Regenerative agriculture um, and particularly organic agriculture because of the cash premium that comes in that system mm-hmm. is proven to be far more profitable. But to be able to make the transition, the farmers have to have the confidence and backing of the Um, crop insurance system, of the lending system, and of their landlords, because, you know, so much of the farm ground is um, leased. And so landlords need to be on board with these changes. The crop insurance system is one that I've recently started to look at more, more seriously, more heavily. And uh, I'm growing a bit uneasy with how we navigate 
fully implementing truly regenerative practices with the crop insurance system as it's currently mm -hmm. set up. Yes. One of the practices that is recommended by um, the consultants at um, Understanding Ag, Alan Williams, Gabe Brown, uh, Ray Archuleta, is getting your cover crops in early, as early as possible. And so there are a lot of farmers who are starting to drill in their cover crop mix at the V4 to V6 stage on the corn. Mm -hmm. Well, depending on who your, your uh, insurance agent is, they may veto that and say, no, that's bad farming practice. That puts your corn at risk because you're going to be overcompeting. Well, if you're, if you're working in that system and you have healthy biology in that soil, the cover crops germinate and they get shaded out and they wait. And they don't outcompete your corn. Your corn finishes. And as it dries off and that canopy opens up, the cover crops then start to, to grow. And they're getting a jump on the season. If you wait to sow those cover crops until after the corn is, is out, you've lost that window and you don't have effective biomass or living roots in the soil for the winter. Right. There's, there's this arbitrary barrier to doing the right thing because of risk management. Yes. It's, it's. It's the opposite of risk management. <laughs> you let people get those cover crops in the ground over over a short number of years. That in itself is more risk management than what the crop insurance system, you know, is intending to provide. And that's something that we need to work on. We need to work on those federal programs to, yeah. to re reevaluate them and reconfigure them so that they are, instead of being antagonistic to regenerative practices, they are supportive of it. And there are many supportive federal programs out there. NRCS offers a number of programs that help cost share implementation of regenerative practices. So this is not an indictment of that no. system. It's just saying no. there's some specific pieces that need some work. Right. And I think uh, there's a lot of movement uh, that there, there hadn't been, but there has recently been a lot of movement in that area. And um, it's exciting to see that. In fact, the Soil Health Institute recently just published a, a really awesome document. We can include it in the podcast notes um, that talks about how the farm bill uh, plays well, uh, you know, or how it does or doesn't play well with soil health uh, initiatives. And so it's really a line by line uh, support. Mm -hmm. And so you can really dig in and see, um, you know, what direction those things are going. But it's something that we do need to bring attention to because it is important because you can't want to do it and then have your hands tied uh, because of practices that you're, you know, or programs that you're participating in. So, yeah. and so you asked the question, how can we support bringing regenerative agriculture to a critical mass in the Midwest and Illinois particularly? And the, the top ways would be to get to know your legislators and reach out to them on these issues educate your legislators who are, are crafting the language about these programs um, of, of what's working and what's not. The other way is to engage with organizations who are bringing resources into this realm. There are 
many nonprofit organizations. There are many university professors and extension agents. There are many for-profit industry organizations who are doing amazing work. And they need to, they, we all need to be communicating with each other. Go to the events, join the listservs, join the conversation, and vote with your dollars by buying regeneratively grown, organically raised, grass-fed, whatever label has the most resonance for you that you want to support that is supporting regenerative practices, put your money there because industry is responding. I just got back from attending the Natural Products Expo East in Baltimore, where the biggest brands in the consumer packaged food goods industry get together and show off what they're doing and try to drum up support and investment and buyers. They listen. If if we're buying as consumers good products, they're going to make good products. If yeah. we hold them to account with our buying practices, they respond. Absolutely. And that trickles all the way down to the farmer. That's right. That's right. Mallory, that is a perfect spot to to end our podcast just talking about the actions and the initiatives that we can all be taking uh, to help further this uh, regenerative ag and soil health movement. And it's more than a movement. I mean, we are adopting practices that are saving our soils and our water systems. And it's super exciting. And the passion that you have for it I think we'll hopefully run through the channels um, of the internet and reach folks and get them fired up about it too. So I really appreciate the time that you've spent with us today. And uh, I hope that we get a chance to continue to work together. Same here. Thank you so much for the work you are doing, Kim. I really appreciate the, the work you're doing to get the message out there. This is such an amazing platform and um uh, I also hope that we can work together more in the future. And, you know, we're all doing, we're doing the good work and we just got to keep on keeping on, you know? <laughs> for sure. For sure. So yeah. thank you so much, Mallory. Thank you, Kim. Mm -hmm. So once again, we want to encourage you to join us at Aggie Merge in beautiful Monterey, California in January, the 7th through the 9th. We're going to have a great time. You know, our theme there is accelerating knowledge, facilitating leadership, and equipping for action. And we want to just be able to present you with a conference that offers a unique opportunity to hear from multiple perspectives and see how thought leaders, entrepreneurs, and forward thinkers like you are tackling some of the most challenging problems in agriculture. It's an immersive conference. You're going to love this experience with new technology highlights and big picture discussions. We'll be looking at emerging trends in soil, plant, and animal health. You're going to have an ample opportunity to trade ideas amongst some of the best minds in agriculture today. There's a lot of folks talking about it that were there last year, and they're excited about what this year is going to bring. So we encourage you to join us for Aggie Merge. Sign up at AggieMerge.com. There's a registration link. So we'd like to encourage you to join us and be part of the conversation. Thanks so much. Have a great day.